Hello, everyone. Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. Each episode is a deep conversation with a carefully chosen peer about not just houses, but place. Yeah, of course we talk about houses and retrofits, but we also want to change the industry for the better, forever. Energy poverty, community engagement, industry disruption, societal responsibility, and climate change. It's all here and so much more. Welcome back to This Must Be the Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. My guest today is Marie Hanship, Project Manager in the Net Zero Energy Housing at the Canadian Home Builders Association. And we met at one of the national technical meetings in October, probably was like, let me think, 2017. Was more recently than that, actually. I've only known you for two and a half years. Uh, I said, oh my God, the COVID thing is just like warped all my, my time scales are messed. <laughs> so I think it was, um, June of 2018 when we were kicking off the net zero renovation working group. Uh, for CHBA when we were running the Net Zero Reno pilot project. So I first ah. met you in an online phone call, a go-to meeting call-in session, uh, and it was the kickoff event. Was it really? So that's where we first met, but we actually we met face-to-face at one of the sessions at in Ottawa that's where right. I had taken a break from one of the super intense technical sessions and was sitting on the stairs and you came over and so we started chatting and I drew a whole bunch of stuff for you because you were like, what's thermal bridging and what's this and what's that? And I was just like drawing all these little, little sketches for you. Yeah, we were talking about attics and attic ventilation was the main topic and um, because it was, um, yeah, because it was the the, the Enercan researcher whose name escapes me right now, but who was doing all sorts of cool roof roof work, which is something that has been a big void. And I need to find her name, and I need to get her on here, and I need to find out what she's doing. Great, thank you for that reminder. But that was really nice. It was it was just sitting on the on the steps, and it was very we were very chill, and we were just chatting about stuff. And I brought up my my journal, and we just started sketching and chatting, and that was very cool. It was such a great conversation. And that was when you first said, oh, I'm going to be, I think I really need to have a podcast. I want, <laughs> want it. Um, so thanks for making this happen. Just to oh, sure you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice to see you again. It's so great um, to see you. <laughs> so I know that you came out of a, you didn't come out of the building industry. You, you moved from different places. And so you were in school and you kind of fell into a niche of technology, society and the environment and the interrelations, therefore, and they're, they're in and all those excellent uh, intersections and, and things. So I want to talk a lot about that because I think that's, that's what drives me too is like, eh, none, of, none, of this is, none of this is out of context. It's all in context, and we need to have that picture with it in front of us all the time. So now's your chance. Go talk. 
Um, I was really, a, I'm a math nerd at heart, and I, I know that core sciences. So I picked chemistry to go into university. And in my second year of university, in my inorganic chemistry class, maybe it was my organic chemistry class, I realized that I was just far too social, and I was unhappy spending this much time in a laboratory alone working on research. I loved the research. I loved the analysis, but I was just lonely. Um, mm. And I wanted to be working on something slightly different. So I broadened my horizons a little bit, took some courses in the arts. In um, I, I took courses from across the spectrum and uh, found a really neat professor who in environmental studies who just told me that I should be in sustainability. Um, so I switched to well, environmental studies. Thanks was, so much to that person. <sighs> Diego Martino, he was just such a great professor. And he's, I think he's working for uh, United Nations now on sustainable development goals in work in, in Uruguay. I'm, I'm still in touch and, with him. Cool. And which university was that? I, I was at Carleton University in okay. Ottawa. Yes. I was at Carleton in Ottawa. I had lived in Montreal. Uh, that's where I had grown up, so big city. And I'd moved to a small town in New Brunswick, Quispamsis. Um, and then I thought I was Quispamsis, and I talked to, um, uh-oh, my brain Brad is going to just like, I talked to Brad, yeah, I was going to say Brad, Brad, what's Brad's last name? Brad McLaughlin. Last, my last episode was with Brad McLaughlin. So, yeah, Quispamsis, rock on. Uh, yeah, lived in Quispamsis, New Brunswick, and then I wanted to kind of pick a middle-sized city after having lived in both of those cities. And it, those are also both hmm, Quispamsis isn't just bilingual, but um, I'd lived in Montreal, which was quite bilingual, and I wanted to go back to that life. Hmm. So I moved to Ottawa for university. Your home is in Ottawa. Your work in Ottawa is with CHBA National Office. Right. So I want to know, you can, well, I know what you do, um, but I definitely want uh, a whole bunch of other folks to know what you do because you're doing some great work. So go ahead. Thanks for using an adjective of great before the work part. Uh, definitely a lot of work. But before my work at CHBA, uh, this wasn't my first intro into the buildings industry. From that initial role of kind of environmental studies, I did environmental education, then that we merged into consulting, and I was working on GHG management and inventories. Um, so which, GHG, greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, yeah, yeah, greenhouse gas yeah. Um, calculations for larger organizations, and then uh, did work on greenhouse gas and energy management with larger building portfolios, and then did that in the residential sector, and then came to CHBA. So it... It does have a logical progression. I didn't mm -hmm. come to the sustainable building industry from um, straight out of school or anything. It's been a decade and a bit or so <laughs> uh, of, of work that's just kind of turned corners over time, and it's been a major interest. So, and in all that work, um, I know that you have learned a lot about renovating existing buildings and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So let's talk a little bit about the existing infrastructure and what we need to do with it, to it, and around it. Well, you and I both know that what we need to do is a massive undertaking, and it's not only up to the building industry. We need infrastructure upgrades. We need municipalities to understand the challenge. We need different levels of government all working on this. And 
while I work in the net zero energy housing space, um, net zero energy housing for renovations is not always it's not always the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, not always, not always like affordable. <laughs> not going to be the right price point. Maybe there are going to be different tiers of mm-hmm. renovations that are going to get a bigger greenhouse gas reduction for the same amount of money um, or get a better consumer goal. Because we always want to make sure that homeowners or occupants of buildings are going to be comfortable and safe inside of those homes. And mm-hmm. it's not all about energy. Um, if the home is energy efficient but can't survive a big rainfall or you can have water damage or mold damage, then that's not it's not a sustainable building, that's an energy efficient building. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, energy, energy efficiency is part of the equation, but it's not, it's not the full solution. I would totally agree with that because what, what I found in my consulting practice is that people, you, when they come to me for looking, talking about deep energy retrofits and net zero renovations, they're really not that interested in the energy reduction it's kind of like an added benefit. What they want is something that uh, will keep them comfortable, um, has good indoor air quality, so that they and their household are safe. Um, yeah. they're, they're, and the house doesn't negatively impact their their um, their health, and that it's durable. It's going to be something that they don't have to do a lot of work for once it's once it's uh, renovated. Um, yeah, and then yeah, energy total bonus and. Sometimes there's, you know, there's always conflicting agendas because I want to have that black granite countertop or, or, <laughs> or, um, you know, all those things that are very touchy feely and, and you can actually get at them and as opposed to the, uh, the structural pieces. And we have such split incentives too. So when mm-hmm. I find people often talk about homeowners and because I'd worked in the rental portfolio stock for a long time, I think a lot about occupants of the homes right. and occupants aren't paying for everything necessarily when they're renters and neither is the owner of the building at right. that point. So it's split out and it's such a challenge to design incentives that meet who the decision maker is in different scenarios. Uh, if right. somebody's the owner and occupier of a building, well, it's much easier to build a business case for energy reduction if you're also incorporating elements of comfort and air quality. But mm-hmm. if you have to really care about your occupants to do that on their behalf, and the renter yeah. often doesn't have the power and control to make those changes on their own. And so is that... Is that the only place where we see split incentives in your in in the work that you're doing, uh, or is there? No. <laughs> geez, like, let's let's talk a little bit more about that. So, so the term is used a lot, and I'm not sure that people really understand when we're talking about split incentives, um, except for when we start, you know, nerdy people who drill down into these kinds of things. But at the surface level, it's like a split incentive. I don't know what that means, or I kind of think maybe I know what that means. So those great start to you know when you're you have rental properties how is that incentive being split but if you want to dive into some more because I know you have a lot to say about this too sure so did you want me to dive into more uh, like a deep dive on an example of the in the utility bill yes, split incentive please. or should we talk about the split incentives and this the misalignment and focus between energy reduction and greenhouse gas reduction what do you want to talk e, about all of the above <laughs> Great. This is my kind of conversation. Welcome to the nerd zone. 
So for split incentives on rental buildings, uh, if tenants, so tenants often don't get control over an envelope upgrade, right? You know, if you're renting a building for a period of time, renting a unit, don't necessarily get control over what windows you're going to have installed, um, what kind of heating system there is. There's not a lot of choice for those consumers in terms of what they have access to as they start to rent a building or what they have the opportunity to upgrade. That's really up to the building manager or property manager or building owner. Meanwhile, that tenant might be paying for their own heat. They might mm-hmm. be paying for their own electricity, for their lights, their refrigerator, um, and all of their other plug loads. So the build, the tenant can't control their heating system, but they have to control. They have to pay for the heat they use. The tenant doesn't get to control what refrigerator gets put into their unit, but they pay for the electricity from that mm-hmm. refrigerator mm-hmm. because it's on the same electrical panel as. Um, as their lights and, you know, how much they're using for charging their laptop and everything else. Meanwhile, the property manager or the building owner has control over what type of equipment they put in, but they don't get to see a reduced utility bill uh, by putting in more efficient equipment. If t- so if tenants pay for their own usage, that's great for a property manager in many ways because they're reducing their ongoing operating costs, but that building owner no longer has any financial reason mm-hmm. to improve the energy performance of the asset or of the building or of any specific equipment because there's no payback on it. They're not paying the bills for the consumption. Right, right. It leads to a building over time, maybe possibly having worse performance year over year if they split out the consumption of those individual tenants um, to pay for their own consumption. And yet we also have examples of really high performance builders who want to be able to make those splits because they're saying we want to give the most efficient equipment possible and the best envelope possible. And they're struggling to have tenants be legally allowed to pay for their own in-suite usage because there have been, um, there's there's consumer protection regulations in place in some areas of Canada that prevent those builders from charging their tenants for their usage. It's a whole can of worms. (laughs) It is a whole can of worms. So how do you reduce when you own and operate your own building or your single, single home, it's much easier. The business case is the, the owner who's also living there. They can mm-hmm. improve their furnace and get an immediate payback on their bills. That's phenomenal. That's easy. That's simple. It's much more complicated if there's a, if you have a landlord, the landlord has control over your furnace and your windows. And I was, you're paying for the, for the, the fuel and energy costs. At the time, yeah. 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 So I like my, my, favorite solution to that was uh, introduced to me, I think, in the early 1990s by a fellow who worked with what was then Energy and Mines, Nova Scotia. His name is Hal Doublestein, and he was a really clever person, uh, heavily involved with building science and stuff. So, I mean, and we had a really proactive uh, group of, of uh, bureaucrats here for a long, long time still do in some senses, um, which is super for Nova Scotia because we have really old housing stock. Um, and we have this like low income range and high 
high income tax and a lot of renters. And um, and so what Hal did was he purchased a whole series of quadplexes, so four unit buildings, and then did deep energy retrofits to them on the exterior. So this is in the 19, early 1990s and then put them back into the rental market, utilities included. And the reason he did that was that he really felt like he could have a longer tenancy period when people didn't have to worry about the fluctuation in their bills. Um, And so he gave them a secure place to be and paid the energy bills um, for these super, super insulated buildings at the time. Sort of taking a page out of um, out of Harold Orr's chainsaw retrofit yeah. idea, and yeah, for years he did that. He had a whole like a nice tidy little portfolio of buildings that he had hardly ever had any vacancies, never had any issues with with people um, squawking about comfort. You know, his his maintenance stuff was absolutely minimal. And it made just for me, it was like, well, that makes a lot of sense. If I was to be an investment property owner, I would want to ensure that I didn't have to deal with tenant turnover. Yeah. Uh, so because that's costly, right? It's it costly is. before and after and during some of the time when somebody's not there. And if you can't rent that unit, you're losing money every month. It sure Ugh. is. It sure is. There's fix-ups. You need to repaint, uh, go back, leasing again, uh, looking through sales, possibly more administration, set up. Yeah, no, it's it's far more. What do they always say? It's far easier. The cheapest customer is the customer you already have. It's a customer Mm -hmm. retention strategy. Forget about new sales. Work on retaining your existing customers. Yeah, retain your existing tenants. Keep them happy. That's a great business model. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I, not that I'm a I'm a property owner other than me, but I would definitely like to um, to be there. So, so tell me about like what do you think? How can we incentivize property managers and owners? Well, I'm I'm working with uh, in my net zero MERB project, which is affordable, replicable net zero MERBs using prefabrication to reduce the initial costs of building and reduce construction schedules. Um, one of the builders is doing just that. So there are, I think, four of the six builds are purpose-built rentals, and one of them is looking to have utilities included for that reason. So they said they're just doing a really high-performance home or really high-performance units, and they're mm-hmm. going to have utilities included for their tenants. We're going to be tracking the ongoing performance of that for about five years to see if those tenants are using more or less energy than Mm -hmm. other units and where that energy is coming from. That's Uh, great. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, you can't measure what you don't know. That's right. No, you can't know what you don't measure. (laughs) I had a concussion. I can can claim (laughs) backwards concepts (laughs) for a couple more months, I think. (laughs) <laughs> can't measure what you don't manage can't manage what you don't measure <laughs> there you go oh, we'll get it soon uh, but that's great monitoring and measuring things is really really important you have benchmarks before after and during and five years is a fantastic period of time for this and i can see you're very excited to say something else so I'll shut up. I, i'm so i'm so excited for uh 
well, one main reason, which is the level of granularity we're getting to in that project. Um, we're not just measuring kind of in-suite consumption, common area consumption, but we're measuring every individual load. So all appliances Sweet. that are on, yeah, it's very, yeah. very detailed. Are you using a, like something like a sense or um, like what, what kind of uh, monitor are you using? Oh, we're, we're going better than uh, that kind of sense monitor, which is what's installed in my home. And I truly love it. It's so much fun. Yeah. But it doesn't pick up on really small loads like lighting because uh, they don't okay. have or for me, it hasn't picked up on any of any of my lighting in my home because I use such energy efficient lights. Um, hey, hey. It right. Right. <laughs> um, so it hasn't picked any of the any of that equipment up, but it's picked up a refrigerator and it figures out, uh, you know, different like, oh, fan is turning on it's fun level of information yeah my favorite part, i have to tell you my favorite part about my sense monitor is i go for a walk in the morning and it will tell me i get a little alert saying your coffee maker just turned on and i so you know it's time to turn back and go home then i know that i can go home by then because there'll be coffee at home nice. and that is my favorite part of the sense energy monitor. <laughs> I know it has all kinds of it's fun. It's very practical. I like it. <laughs> it has great yeah. tracking mechanisms for, you know, uh, whether or not you're going to be over budget on an individual month and stuff. That's fun too. But, or and also tracking kind of your phantom loads. You're always on information. Mm-hmm. But what I like about it is alerts. Um, I like getting the alert that the garage door just turned on. Then, you know, we get this last minute scurry of like, oh, crap, let me just put um, put these three things on the counter away before someone gets home. <laughs> um, and uh, I've heard, uh, I think it was about the sense monitors that uh, they're, they're not very good at variable loads. Like so for cold climate heat pumps with variable compressors and stuff like that, that they don't quite match up. And I'm not sure if that's the same one or not. I know, I think Chris Higgins might have been talking about that. I'm not sure. I don't have a cold climate heat pump. I've only been in my house for almost two years. Um, so just just working on that. <laughs> I know all about net zero renovations. Uh, I know. But for, <laughs> I know. I, me too. Like, yeah, I live in like the. I am the 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 net zero renovators equivalent of the shoemaker's children. Yeah, yeah. I know all the things I could do, and then I'm sort of I fight. So here's and here's what I know. My clients have also felt, and I know that builders and 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 the folks that were we were in the the, the net zero renovation group were were also talking about this. Is the whole sort of um, shaving the yak kind of, I know the face is like, what? Shaving the yak is like, it's like what, what uh, neuroatypical folks talk about getting into something and then having to, like you started to just like shave the forehead of the yak, but then, oh no, it's all attached and you have to, and then you have a bigger job and a bigger job and then you have the whole yak to shave. And that's where I get to with my house. It's like, well, I could do this or that. Oh no, I can't do that because I have to do all that like something really fundamental like we have a we have the stupid insulating radiant panels in the house electric radiant panels half of them are broken we have space heaters in the house like those look like like stand up oil based electric rads uh-huh. and i want to put in a new heating system i want to put in some new windows and i want to do this and do that and everything comes back to oh, the heating system 
that's you know oh, and that's the that's the crucial thing for this house to move forward is I have to figure that out and everything else has to wait because it's such an expense but also because there's a stupidly designed HRV system with get this floor registers for the supplies oh so yeah <laughs> it's just it's a yeah it's a, a work in progress shall hmm. we say um anyway <laughs> but the, this concept of moving like how like the like the goalposts move and you've got to say you know move one one thing to do another but you've got seven steps in front of the first thing and and so we need to have some you know this is why we have these working groups and why you're doing this great pilot project and you're just focusing on how do we make these kinds of things happen i okay there were two other things i wanted to say when we were talking yeah. about the, the sub metering and, and a one-year pilot or, and how in the mer project we're getting five additional years so in some parts of canada um so alberta specifically your utility rate is partly based off of demand, not just consumption. So peak demand. So if you have one day of really, really high, really, really high peak demand, um, then your utility rate per kilowatt hour for the next year is going to be higher. Um, so for it can one day for one day. Oh, so your right. rate for the following year is based off of your peak day from the previous year. So a one-year post post retrofit analysis isn't enough time because if that demand day hasn't come into place yet yes maybe your energy consumption will be better post retrofit but if you switch to something that had a really high demand charge um, your utility costs may go up in that region with some specific utilities in in that province and so that is that something is that specific to alberta or is that is that a the case in different parts of the parts of the country I've seen it only in Alberta, but I don't uh, do deep dives on all the utility rates across Canada on a regular basis. And I've heard rumors um, from some utilities that they're looking more at demand charges because they're more interested in con controlling when uh, consumers are using mm -hmm. electricity than how much they're using on that right, Because we want to make sure we have we don't have crazy peaks, so we can keep. Mm -hmm. A relatively stable um, generation level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And electrification is going to be a big game changer on that. Exactly, electrification, which is what we're pushing to if we want deep greenhouse gas emissions mm -hmm. and with challenges of new peak loads, which means utilities are going to have new challenges and how they're going to be managing those. Or individual homeowners are going to be taking on the brunt of those additional charges. Um, so you and I were both in that net zero reno working group where a renovator said the first net zero renovation on the block is no problem. He knows how to do that. And the second one, they're going to have to pay additional infrastructure charges um, to the local utility for a transformer upgrade, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And is that really the second homeowner's responsibility or is it the utility's responsibility or should that be spread out amongst all bill payers? I don't. I don't know right. how to answer those questions, but right. Well, and that we could take a step back from that, and then then talk about what kind of in infrastructure needs to be in place, right? And move back, step back to the municipal level now, because um, I really like the, and I've talked about this before, um, the model of the Bridgewater here in Nova Scotia is considering, and, and they've got some great money to to do to explore that, and that is what happens if 
the or how does this look if the town is the energy manager for all the houses for all the housing right so just like they are the sewer manager and the water manager just if energy is considered a service then it takes the bulk of the pain off the individual homeowner and puts it onto that house and then just like a pace program or anything like that the the cost of do, doing any improvements stays with the house and becomes part of the tax roll and and it's it's different from pace because it's actually the town being the energy manager as mm-hmm. opposed to the, the or the, the the municipality being the energy manager as opposed to the municipality being the conduit for funding for a homeowner so yeah. i kind of i think we need to to have some really great late night conversations that just you know involve a whole raft of people and really clever ideas and and just throw things at the wall until they start to stick yeah yeah we absolutely i feel like the number of times people have said you know what else is an idea you know what else we need mm-hmm. the answer is yes, <laughs> yes and let's all embrace our inner um improv artists and say yes that's an important problem we should address that's a potential solution and here are the other ones we need to solve too and prioritize them out a little bit because personally i um at the beginning of the pandemic lost a lot of sleep over uh climate change emergency elements and i just felt there were mm-hmm. too many emergencies for me to be uh, emotionally handling at once um people were I was grateful to be in Canada where people were uh, had a little bit more rent protection, um, but it wasn't making its way to everyone all over. And it was, uh, it, it impacted me significantly to think about mm-hmm. people losing their, mm-hmm. losing their homes, losing their, whether they owned it or rented it. Um, doesn't make a difference to me. Your home is your shelter and it's your place where you raise your families and you make memories and now it's also where many of us work and spend 22 hours a day or something (laughs) yes welcome to my life (laughs) (laughs) but green we were always talking i I found for a long time people were really talking about energy they were saying oh we want to yeah we bring it just we want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions because we know that's going to reduce our energy which is going to reduce our energy costs and to me those are three very separate targets with different um, strategies to achieve them because mm-hmm. we know that if you want to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions, that might end up increasing your energy in the house or your energy cost in a house if you're just electrifying, but you can electrify and improve the envelope. What if you do this package of elements? Mm-hmm. The best this is my lane. This is totally my lane, right? Yes. Let's Let's look at how do we actually physically reduce the amount of energy your building needs first let's do that is it ready for that piece because that makes more sense right if you decide it if you going to do some sort of an upgrade maybe it's a 30 year old house maybe it's a you know 30 50 year old building and you need to do some sprucing up perfect let's attack this from the outside and make it work so that's yeah so so then the municipalities are having their, um, their every, all these municipalities are developing their own deep energy renovation strategies and they're focusing on uh, residential housing and the number of times we've had conversations with different municipalities who are running or starting up these new programs and said, 
oh, you know, I see that you're going to have air tightness as a major target. Um, have you considered adding in vent, like <laughs> checking the ventilation first to make sure there's going to be new fresh air? Um, building science, that is not necessarily top of mind um, mm-hmm. for policymakers. So it's our job to make sure we're continuously communicating that. And I panicked a lot at the beginning of the pandemic um, about whether or not in building science information to make sure that people were going to continue to be safe in their homes, the places where they're, the world is scary for a lot of people right now, Mm -hmm. we're at Mm -hmm. home and you're talking about changing and renovating those homes, please make sure that those homes stay safe, comfortable and affordable for those people. And the good news is that there is a, I mean, uh, silver lining ish <laughs> from a pandemic um, is that there is a much larger concern coming up about healthy indoor air quality or healthy indoor environment and the air quality and what we're seeing a lot of like and I might be living in a bit of a bubble because this is my world but I am seeing a huge amount of discussion in all sorts of different social media forums and in all sorts of different networking things that I have been involved in that focus on the fact that we need to improve ventilation in buildings, period. Period. End of story. We need to do this. And so it's coming out in terms of classrooms. It's coming out in terms of building uh, business uh, spaces Restaurants, you know, we've got some great uh, uh, data and analytics around super spreader events that happened in public spaces. And so all of this stuff is coming forward and people are, like you said, they're spending so much more time in their their homes now that lots of people, lots more people are, are working from home that now we actually do have a little bit more awareness. And I'm doing everything that I can possibly do on my little own self here to, uh, to dig into that and make sure that this continues to be the biggest thing. We need to talk about health. We need to talk about comfort. And happily, when you deal with comfort and health, you are also improving energy consumption or energy efficiency. So it's a bonus point all the way around. Yeah. Often, unless you're just turning off the makeup air for a building to save energy. Have I ever shared my funny energy efficiency story with you? My, my funny. I don't know. Just the one. The one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you only have one. Come on. I know you have way more than that, Marie. Okay. There are lots of funny energy efficiency stories, uh, but the one of the day, which is kind of our focus right now about um, maintaining somebody's safety and comfort at the same time as focusing on energy efficiency, is the idea that um, there has been a situation that I was presented with before where a Someone was offered an award for massive energy reduction in a portfolio of buildings, uh, but it was because the reason there was a big reduction in energy in those buildings uh, year over year was because some of the buildings in the portfolio had burned down. Um, so, yes, there's energy reduction in that set of buildings, but it's not providing shelter to anyone anymore. There was a um, emergency. Um, and definitely there was a fire which produces greenhouse gas emissions in the short term. So is this really worth an award? Energy, and also nobody's getting the, the rental income at that point. So there's, right. for me, so that's not making a business case at all. No. So energy in isolation is just not the, mm-hmm. the my objective ever. It's 
energy plus comfort plus costing um plus you have to be able to I, yes i like to i work in the for-profit sector often i think about the for-profit builders as well as non-profit builders mm-hmm. and yeah let's figure out what the business case is for all of this but these are people's homes burning down <laughs> sorry <laughs> so so that could be a it could have been a uh, uh, a bonus point for the owner in terms of their their asset burning down? Maybe, I don't know. But it certainly doesn't help anybody in terms of homes in which energy is. Okay. Well, we're not going to go any further down that rabbit hole. Okay. <laughs> I want to, but I want to know, because you are such a radical person. I, I, and it's one of the things that I, I, you know, I cherish most about you other than the fact that you're a complete nerd. Um, is Take that about you too, Shauna. <laughs> we met on the same wavelength and we're just still there. We are. Because I want to know how one time you won an Employee of the Year award, but you didn't get the award. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Because um, you, Rebel, didn't, didn't follow the dress code. What's up with that? Um, So I fell in love with my partner and moved to Mexico many years ago and worked in Mexico for a year and, you know, doing what people in their early 20s do. I taught English at a Montessori school and at another school, but I... I, I failed to paint my nails and put on makeup and wear high heels on a daily basis. And so I, um, even though I had been told I won the Employee of the Year Award, was bumped down to second place, like honorary mention Employee of the Year for not meeting dress code requirements. And that was halfway through the year, and I didn't change my dress code for the second half of the year. For you. Read on. But, yeah, let's uh, – whew. So now oh, I work man. in the construction industry where nobody says boo about wearing construction boots to work instead of high heels. <laughs> I love it. That's why I'm here. <laughs> I mean, I could wear torn jeans and you're not going to squawk at me. All right. I'm good. <laughs> and then finding, <laughs> and then being on my knees and, you know, working on, working in, in construction for so long that I can't actually now can no longer wear high heels because my knees are shot. So, you know, oh, well. It's fine. <laughs> and so on the, um, I, but I come by this kind of um, rebellious spirit quite honestly. My grandmother was an actress. Um, and just this weekend, I was thinking about her quite a bit because I was making her Lebkuchen recipe, which is a German honey cake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was making her recipe, which I have printed out by hand. I had gone to her house 20 years ago to learn how to make the recipe because she refused to give the recipe to my mother. Um, She would constantly make up fake recipes and give them to my mom um, and sometimes just print them off the Internet, give her random recipes. And so I went over and, and had learned how to make this recipe from my mother, from my grandmother. And my grandmother gave it to me on the condition that I never tell my mom how to make Lebkuchen. Um, and so I, I made it this weekend and I'm bringing it to my mom. Uh, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> this is the same grandmother who fell in love with a prisoner of war over a fence, um, didn't speak the same language as him, 
got herself a wedding ring, went, took a boat over to England to marry him while he was still a prisoner of war, uh, married him, got pregnant the next day, and didn't see him again for five years. <laughs> Holy jumping. Oh, wow. drama. Yeah. You want, you want rebel girls? That's our house. I want to hear way more about you gals. This is fantastic. <laughs> That's amazing. But I know that you've said um, that you accidentally turned your father into a climate change activist when he retired. So let's talk about that a bit. Yeah. My my father was. Because it's not just the gals in your family, apparently. No, it's not just the gals in my family. My dad, when he was retiring, um, so he grew up as a Boy Scout, so he was used to the concept. uh, He was a nature and we always went out camping but he was used to the concept of when you leave a campsite you leave it better than the way Mm -hmm. you um, first saw it so in in better condition um and my father retired right around the time that my daughter was born and he felt a huge sense of obligation meeting a baby and thinking about um what he was going to do next with his life and he was considering all kinds of altruistic uh, paths. And I just kind of gave him a gentle nudge towards climate change as a potential area to explore. And he is a very interesting climate change activist now. Uh, so he's part of an organization called For Our Grandchildren. I have seen videos of my father dr- dressed up like a superhero um, as Captain Climate Change dancing at rallies. He has my daughter singing climate change songs. Um, Yep. It's pretty involved. That's excellent. I love that. I want to wrap up by going back to the work you're doing with uh, Net Zero and MERBS. And let's talk about like can we see some data, some information? Where can we find that and what's going to happen next and and uh, what's on the horizon? It's a multi-year project um, that's funded primarily by Natural Resources Canada. It is so interesting. The original scope of work um, was, was set when we received the project funding. So when we had our initial kickoff meeting with all of the project stakeholders, they just wanted to do more and more and more. So we added so much additional research into this project. It's, uh, that's what I was talking about. You know, the requirement was only to check energy performance of the building versus what we had modeled it to be. So, you know, what's the actual uses versus mm-hmm. what we had predicted when we did the initial Hot 2000 models for these buildings. But these builders wanted to know, well, why is it different? You know, are there challenges with the occupant loads? Uh, it, is it a specific piece of equipment that's failing? Well, what about the domestic hot water in Merbs? You might end up with a one-bedroom bachelor apartment. Um, are we still going to have two adults and one child using hot water here? Are the plug loads going to change? So this is just a very, very curious bunch of stakeholders. And through that, we've expanded the details of the research that we're doing in just about every area from monitoring to, yeah, you had Doug Terry on a little while ago um, and he was talking about some of the work we were doing on active and passive survivability. So that analysis Mm -hmm. came out of the Net Zero Merb project as well. 
Um, we've been looking at kind of points of connection. So if you have a single, should you have a single PV or solar array for a set of many, many um, units in a building? Because it's more cost effective to have one point of connection for net metering and then um, submetering for those individual tenants to pay for their own electricity. And Yes, we did talk about the possibility of having the utilities included in all of those circumstances, but high level, uh, the research suggests that tenants will use about 30% less um, electricity if they're paying their own utility bills um, on electricity specifically. So there's definitely an argument for having those tenants um, reduce their, uh, have a a sense of ownership of their own consumption uh, to be able to monitor that over time. Where it's going is um, with COVID, a lot of the project construction schedules were delayed. Uh, mm-hmm. so there has been one building completely built, a modular build in Saskatoon. Uh, the one in Calgary is having its ribbon cutting ceremony in February 2022 with their openings. Um, more another one in March and it'll, more projects will be completed over the next year. And after that, we're looking back on all of those key performance indicators that we were tracking. So were the construction schedules reduced? Did we get faster permits on everything? Short answer, no. But there was also a pandemic interfering with that. So we have a lot of points of comparison. Uh, What type of prefabrication was used? Were those a challenge for uh, the trades to was it, was it a challenge for trades to work with panelized walls? Uh, was there a reduction in waste construction? Um, there's a lot to track. And mm-hmm. we were fortunate enough to work with a bunch of builds that have a reference building. So many of them are, many of these builders are building almost the exact same, um, the exact same building multiple times on the same site. So I call it their sister building. So one of them went to net zero uh, as a modular build and the other one went to that builder's regular performance level as modular. And then for a different builder, and so that's a really so great, great point of comparison. Yeah, just so great to have. Basically, they're like the test houses in, at, um, in, in Ottawa there, where you can just sw- swap out some things and say, well, these are exactly the same houses, and now they're not working the same. And what are the differences? And I love those like, things. It is really, really, really great real-world applied science. It really hits my mm-hmm. uh, my nerd alert, and we were really lucky to be able to get builders who were who were doing that. Um, so some of them are doing some prefab, uh, and some like one of their builds is prefab, and the build right next to it is not. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're both going to net zero ready. So yeah. now we have different construction practices, and how does that affect your scheduling and your costing and everything? Brill. Exactly. I'm very excited to hear more and more and more about this. So <laughs> with that information, that'll be on the, on the CHBA national website? It'll be on the CHBA national website. So the page is chba.ca uh, backslash nzmurbs, M-U-R-B-S. But more than web page updates, we're writing our final report once everything is constructed, and we're going to be doing a lot of information dissemination. We have original commitments on what exactly we want to be presenting, and there's a very specific order of operations. Because it's a funded project, we're always giving the information to the funders and the, mm-hmm. the builders who are participating in the project first, and then we go back to the Net Zero Council, who's kind of the broader 
supporter of the project and then to the CHBA members because CHBA is a membership driven association and beyond that we're able to share details and information um it's been a it's really valuable information about applied research and development this is fantastic I'm so excited. We are almost out of time, and I feel like we could talk probably for another two hours, but Mike, the engineer, is probably like, yeah, no, we're not. (laughs) But I didn't even get to talk about my exciting things, Shauna. Okay, quick, exciting things. Go. (laughs) Okay. What's most important in our industry right now is what's really emerging is embodied carbon, and we need to figure out how to quantify this now. We need we yes. need detailed results on this now. So there is a carb to cost to not just construction of not just the operation of buildings, but constructing building. And there's a there's a climate change mm-hmm. cost to that. But we can't only focus on what the emissions are. We have to think about resilience. There's there have been so many events in the last sorry, go ahead. No, you I was gonna say I, listener and I see this face. Totally. I really want to I want to have you and Doug Tari and um my brain again, this concussion brain. Chris Magwood. Frank Thank Loman. You, Chris Magwood. Yeah. Yeah. And who else? Frank Loman. Frank Loman. And I wanna I actually want to have a whole nice big discussion on carbon loading and resiliency. Let's do that. That'll be like our season two finale. I'm in. I'm okay. in for a conversation with you, Shauna. Um yeah. cool. Let's do it. All right. Well, we are at a wrap now. So thank you so much, Marie, for your time. And we will do this again. And I'll keep you in, in the loop on this thing that might, well, I'll figure out what it, what it, it, how it works. And we'll just go for it. So that's our great episode for today. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in. This episode was produced by Blue House Energy, Podcast Atlantic, and Tanya Media. Subscribe and don't miss an episode. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time.